billion dollar health idea. I'm the most brutal and I'm the so most brutal champion I've ever been. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Round one, fight. So yeah, um, first idea is basically multi-level summarization of research using AI. And what I mean by this is obviously research is being published at like a ridiculous rate. There's like millions of millions of papers like every year. It's super hard for anyone to keep up to, to date with everything, including like even active researchers like in the field. Um, and AI is just getting better and better. So like we have ChatGPT that probably like a lot of people are aware of recently, um, which is actually very good at if you give it some text, ask it to summarize. It does a pretty good job. There's like some caveats in that actually uh, it sometimes bullshits um, and just like makes stuff up. So you have to be a bit wary of that. Um, but I feel ultimately, yeah, we're definitely moving in this direction of being able to summarize stuff. A very obvious like application area is academic papers, like the massive amount of content and kind of getting just like the actionable insights out of those. And then the, the kind of second level on top of this is the multi-level aspect, which is that um, basically summarizing things at different levels of complexity. Um, because people coming at this will, will have different levels of, of understanding. So you might have a researcher who wants, you know, they want actually like quite a lot of detail. You might have somebody who just really wants the high level takeaway. And so if you could train a train an AI to summarize and to, um, yeah, basically give like tailored levels to different people. Um, that's like kind of the initial high level idea. And like, who's this useful for? Like who, basically who, who's this useful for? And secondly, who has the money to pay for this? Yeah. So in terms of who's it useful for, I think, um, a, different, a few different groups here. So the first group is like actual researchers who just want to keep up to date with their field and struggle because there's so much stuff and they just want to like save some time on keeping up, up to date with things. Then there's like a second group, which is people who are just interested in like science-based things, like trying to understand, okay, um, you know, what's the evidence behind uh, my diets, right? So like there's, there's cool stuff coming out in diets. I want to understand what the latest findings are. Um, or maybe longevity as well. Like some people just want to know, okay, what can I be doing now to, to like live longer? And they don't really want to have to go through their research papers. They probably have like other jobs and are busy with other stuff, but they love like the quick takeaways. So that is like a little bit like a, um, uh, what's it called? Blinkist, right? Um, that thing that summarizes books is a little bit like that. Um, and yeah, actually, so Andrew Huberman podcast, like which you probably are aware of, right? Like uh, that is like, it's, it's kind of become super popular. Um, in a short space of time. And I think that shows the appetite for this kind of summarization of like the science in condensed formats for, for these kind of, uh, this like growing audience of people who are just interested in this in general. Um, so yeah, that will be the second group. And then I think there's probably, there's probably a third group who would just be interested in, in like the, the kind of like real nugget, like takeaways, right. In, in a, in a quicker digestible format. So kind of like how you check the news. You're just checking like, hey, these are the top takeaways of like academic research and you're not, you're relying less on humans to like, you're relying less on the media to like go through and like find these things and then present them to you. You're maybe using AI to do that. Um, that's yeah. Those kind of like, three broad groups, I would say. The second question I think is, yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. So who would pay for it? Um, researchers, maybe yes. Although like, I mean, obviously researchers generally are, are not like super keen on, on paying for stuff. I mean, maybe you can try to get an institution to pay for it. Um, in the same way, like institutions obviously get licenses for academic papers. Um, and like, you know, you can access to your institution. Could you also get your institution to get some sign of license for accessing the actual, uh, the, the like summaries, like potentially, yes, if you could indicate that this, this improves research output or like helps researchers in some way. Um, I mean, how else? Yeah. Maybe, maybe something like a Blinkist type model, like people, people pay a subscription to get summaries of books. Maybe people would also pay a subscription to get a summary of like academia. It's just like a kind of different source. Um, but it's a similar sort of product to Blinkist. Yeah. Those, those are the initial thoughts. I mean, what do you think? Like, do you, who could you see paying for this? Like to do those, uh, those summaries more? So as background, me, you and Stu have been working on explainthispaper.com, which is essentially morning brew or Blinkist for medical AI. So let's, let's summarize medical AI research papers in really plain English, use emojis, keep it super simple. So anyone who's interested can understand. And I think the feedback we've had from that from people is like really excellent. People really, really like it and uh, really support the cause. And we've had like various bits of grant funding for it. So it's been super cool. Uh, we do, we're doing it all manually, but we have this problem of how do we fund this all, you know, beyond just applying for grants back to back. And the, the ways I saw one to build it up, to build such an audience that you can use the ad model. And obviously you're not going to get probably the same numbers as like a general business newsletter, but you can potentially get 
um, a really specific niche of like either scientists, researchers, doctors, builders in healthcare, in biotech, etc. And then you can, I don't know, the ads can be kind of like like job postings or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, for this very niche group. And then the second way you could fund it would be to pivot it more towards something that people who have money would find useful. So I think the ways we discussed or like looked into for that would be a either speaking to large companies with budgets for things related to healthcare. So you can imagine providing them with summarization or resources on kind of like what Andrew Huberman does, like stuff on wellness, on sleep, on exercise, nutrition, etc. But really focus it towards their staff and kind of take from their wellness slash staff well-being budgets because I'm sure there's stuff earmarked for that. Um, the second way is to make it useful to investors and other yeah other people with a lot of money i think there's a few things i've seen in this i've seen i think there's a guy called um nathan something who does the state of ai report uh which is i think is quite popular i think a lot of people read that um and a lot of vcs and other people do these kinds of pdf reports where they i think they tend to focus on trends and like what's happened so far and like what's going to happen next year and what's going to get bigger um i personally find them really boring because i think they're so so obvious that it'll be like in next year in q1 telehealth is going to take off and it's like ah oh, no shit so i i i don't find that interesting but i th i think people with money like stuff like that so i think the thing with this generative stuff is i think you have to from my experience at least like tailor it to people who have money like you have to make it useful for them to make some money off it or make it so, so have so much mass appeal uh that you can make the ad model so yeah, I think I think I think as you, as you kind of agree, the researcher model or making it useful for students. I just think there's no, they just don't have money or they're not willing to pay for anything. I think it's so like, I just don't see a business there. Like, what what do you think? Yeah, I think um, no, I, I think definitely you need to focus on a specific, a specific end output, and then like who is it that's interested in in that end output and would they pay for it? Basically, is like kind of the framing I would take. Um, so yeah, maybe the end output is like some sort of summary research. Um, like trends and then maybe VCs are interested yeah. in that like yeah that's definitely like one potential angle I mean I, I kind of feel I feel like you would you'd ultimately have to you'd have to like validate with these different groups whether that end output is interesting for them and there's always a question here around what is the advantage of doing an AI with using an AI to, to like generate this because in many cases like state of AI report I think I assume it's like mostly or if not all human generated um, and it's popular but yeah. like um, yeah what's the advantage of, of using like a some kind of generative model to to make the summaries um for me one of the one of the reasons that yeah like so actually for context well with the experience paper stuff like one thing we've found is tricky is that we're writing these like fully like human written summaries which people really like and find like a great way to keep up to date with stuff but then it's like not super scalable from our point of view because it's very hard like we you know every summary takes like two three four hours um which then kind of from the potential revenue generating point of view, you've, you're already, you've got like a lot on the kind of cost side that you need to offset with, with the revenue, right? Whereas maybe if you introduce the AI, you could like really actually whittle down the actual costs because if a summary goes from like four hours to two minutes, then actually the like revenue demands to then retrospectively like pay for that time investment becomes like much lower. Um, so I think the, I would say the main benefit of the AI being in like it enables to scale things um, from the output point of view, so therefore, even if we're talking about, you know, students or researchers, maybe they have like a small budget, but actually in the world, there's a decent number of researchers worldwide. And if it's not super expensive for them and the cost for us to create it are low, then there could be a business there. But the, yeah, the issue is really, you know, how, how much, how much can you automate things? Like I'm not like chat GPT. I don't think right now with the current state of play, I don't think you could start summarizing research papers and like sell that as a as a product to researchers that really is going to be like high high value i think um yeah but are we heading in that direction i mean I, I think so i think there's probably some there's some technical improvements that could be made as like natural next steps um but definitely yeah ChatGPT, i think has opened it's opened my eyes a little bit to like how good things could get but would ultimately and then maybe you could like um fine-tune a, a, a gpt like model or gpt into something that's more around summarization in some way in terms of using chat gpt for um summarization of let's just say scientific research um i like you know that quote which is like that a human and a banana share 90 percent of their dna I, I don't actually know if it's true but it sounds legit 
um with a lot of the output i've seen it sounds kind of like that where it's like 90 percent there but that last 10 percent, there's almost like this restriction of range where that last 10 percent is almost the most important 10 percent that's the difference between say a really like crappy writer versus a really excellent writer um and that's like kind of where all the the quality difference is um in these kinds of things the the one thing that i think might be useful um with ChatGPT and these language models is i guess just the speed at which they can operate and i have a lot of friends in like consulting law uh vc and they seem to spend a lot of time kind of passing through um a lot of different reports and research and just trying to find research to then present to other people and i wonder if like almost like a grammarly type uh add-on that was in your browser that quickly summarized a you know 30 page pdf on uh some ai thing and gave you a nice little i, I exactly just saying multi-level summary i wonder if that would be more useful um because the second thing is as well if you're using this in any serious capacity whether that's within healthcare research or uh in in commerce it, you you can't just trust the, the summaries that are being outputted. You kind of need to validate it yourself a bit. So I'm less keen on things that produce a complete output versus things that just, as you're saying, make a multi, make it just easier for you to get to where you need to go. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for um, the kind of like human AI hybrid, right? So maybe you have a an AI that summarizes the paper initially, and then the human kind of uses that summary as the first draft, and then they maybe make a modification, or maybe goes back into AI, and it like. Um, updating things in some way like i think yeah you could make you can make more of a pipeline around it that's not just all, like fully automated of okay here's the paper give us a summary okay now we check that as a product um probably that's yeah in, in sensitive areas like with research or anything really involving patients that's not really it's not really going to be the case you're always going to need that human oversight um so i think it's just a case of basically improving efficiency but not not like eliminating the need for humans um so there's actually okay a whole nother area which um yeah i could definitely which yeah which i think the applications of of uh summarization in in healthcare outside of research context which we could also talk about um do you want to go into that now or yeah. should we uh yeah yeah so i mean yeah let's do it like i think there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff that we as doctors do which as you say like and similar it's the same like in law and and other fields where it's basically like a lot of like passing text and like extracting key points and I think in, in healthcare, to some, to some extent, it's a bit of an acute issue in that, like, our digital systems, like, often aren't great. And um, you might have, like, you know, loads of, like, old clinic letters, referral letters, uh, discharge summaries, like, things that you have to find or things that you have to write that are quite time-consuming and, like, could definitely be done in a better way. Um, and the, there's, there's ways that, like, we could already... I think to some extent, actually, some hospitals are doing a better job of, like, automatically populating discharge summaries for example like i worked at a hospital in london that that had that um but we could kind of leapfrog the need to set up that infrastructure because this hospital was like quite advanced and actually just make it more of like an ai driven summarization which then could work with with uh quite like diverse inputs right because you could imagine wait, wait let me interrupt so yeah, a, a discharge sure. summary is when a a patient has been there for say a few weeks and they've had every day they've been seen on the ward round and there's maybe like three, th three to 4,000 words of text based on um, what's been going on, what tests they've had ordered, et cetera. When they're leaving the hospital, someone, usually the most junior kind of doctor on the team has to write maybe like a two to 300 word summary of what's happened with then instructions for either the patient or the primary care or GP doctor to then carry out. Um, and it's it's essentially a really kind of boring task which just a more sitting through on a computer sifting through text and summarizing it so like there's like an obvious use case there for summarization using ai uh sorry go ahead yeah so sure exactly so yeah i think um and digital summaries another thing as well they're often done by like quite junior members of the team they're often like quite time consuming um and really like yeah eat up quite a bit of uh quite a bit of your time um but are actually really important because that ultimately is like the the kind of api between the hospital and the gp and like potential future services is that they will actually discharge summary and that's like the summary of your stay and also patients as well like we'll kind of use that as reference so um yeah and it, it like it makes complete sense that if you're recording all of the information during the stay which in medicine you have to because kind of by definition everything that happens should be recorded right so if you're recording all of that the information is actually already there it just needs to be put into the right format and i don't think that that like really really like knife set that doesn't need a human in the loop so I think this could be one of those cases where um, 
you pass all of that information that's been collected during that day, you create some kind of summary and then maybe like a human just checks it um, and maybe tweaks it. Like, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. The other example that's really been um, talked about, like I think for at least a decade, is that having like an Alexa type device sitting during clinics. So you have a 30 minute appointment with a doctor um, that then records and transcribes and then automatically summarizes everything that was said. And because basically right now a doctor will have a clinic, maybe spend 20, 30 minutes doing that. And then at the end, they'll usually dictate or write up a letter, which will go back to their, their main kind of primary care doctor, summarizing what happened and any actions that that is quite time consuming, especially for kind of older doctors who are less um, savvy with, with, with typing and things. Um, so that's like another one, but I, I don't really know why it's not been done. Um, yeah, I hear it talked about a lot. Yeah, same. Yeah, no, I definitely have heard it talked about for quite a while. Uh, I mean, I wonder, so I think a couple of things, one thing is probably like the privacy element in mm -hmm. that you're basically then you have like a yeah. recording of the whole consultation, which, you know, you'd at least need to ask the patients about it. Some might not be happy and, and, um, it's just like a source of friction, I guess. And like friction in healthcare, I think really tends to slow a lot of things down. Um, the second thing as well is probably the extent to which, um, actually going from that free text format of a conversation into the, the like structure of the clinic notes, the technology, I don't think has really been there. I would say, um, maybe, maybe even still not now, uh, because actually the, yeah, the, the, the kind of free text format of like a conversation is a lot harder to actually like picking out the salient points from that, I think is something that human expertise is very good at saying, okay, here's like a long conversation we had, this is like the key points this is how I'm going to structure it. And like, maybe use like history presented complaints, past medical history and the kind of s standard, like medical structure that, that this kind of stuff is put within, um, to be fair, maybe, maybe the technology is, is there or is getting there. Um, I don't know how, like, how, how would you feel about that as an individual? If you, if you went to like see somebody and, and they were like, oh, do you mind if, uh, Alexa here listens or something. Um, I, as a patient, I would love it that then there's a record and then, cause you, you see a lot with the telehealth companies, uh, especially with the telehealth apps where you do remote consultations, they offer you a recording of the consult that then you can play again. Um, I would, as a patient, I'd probably quite enjoy that. Um, as a doctor, I, I would really wouldn't like that. I would compare it to almost like, you know, with security guards, bouncers, police people, um, having body cams on all the time, um, recording everything they do. Um, yeah, I would hate that. So I think yeah. that's, uh, I, th I, I think there'd be more pushback from the medical side rather than the patient side. Yeah. I, I think maybe the approach here would be, you have some kind of device that it doesn't actually store the data long-term. Like it re records that whole conversation, maybe then it outputs like the draft letter and you know, like a guarantee that that data is not going to be stored. It's, it's going to be like deleted from the device. Um, that might be a way to overcome this hurdle because yeah, I think I would feel the same if you know that you're being recorded, like. You're never going to be like fully as natural and probably, you know, I would just feel weird. You know, sometimes it, like we're talking to patients, you might have like a bit of friendly banter or, or, um, stuff that's not like yeah. the, the strict professional, uh, way of like, okay, tell me what's wrong with you. And then like go through this like sequence of questions. Um, I would definitely, I think yeah. if I was being recorded, I, you know, part of my head would be like, no, 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 I, I, can't, I can't, you know, have this casual banter or whatever, which actually I think is probably, probably it is important to be having like a human, human side, right? One of, one of my like limitations with the, uh, automated summaries, um, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't know a lot about this, but when using chat GPT, I think I asked it some questions. I think, I think one question I asked it was like, you know, um, I think I asked it, how do you get rich as a doctor? And it, re it actually gave me a pretty good, um, summary. And it was basically like, um, you're unlikely to get rich as a doctor. You need to like start a business. You need, to, it, 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 it was, it was pretty good, but, um, when I, when I looked at its answers in general, they would kind of be maybe 500 words long. And there'd be, I'd, I'd say maybe like 100 words of actual content and then a lot of fluff. It would be like, you know, when you're um, in school writing an essay and you have to get up to the yeah, word yeah, count. Yeah. So I do wonder with kind of the, the earlier versions of these summarization uh, automated approaches, whether it's actually going to result in more of a headache for the, the doctors or whoever receiving this communication where it's been AI generated and it's just so long and it's unclear um, cause I, I, I think it is a bit of a human skill at the moment, at least to be, to, you know, to write a two or three lines that are really meaningful and summarize everything. Um, I don't think from what I've seen that we're there yet. Yeah. So I think there's like a, a bit of a spectrum, right? From one end, you would have like a full transcript of the entire conversation, which if there's like a 10 minute appointment, it's not going to be that helpful or like passable to a doctor. And probably somewhere in the middle, you have these kind of chat GPT style summaries where, as you say, it's quite wordy, um, 
it has the points there, but it's like a lot of like kind of fluff around it. And then probably the the kind of gold standard, what we really should want is a, like a nice structured thing with just the key salient points, probably in that format of like history presented complaint, past medical history, um, like any progression of symptoms and, and like the relevant information. Um, and I think we're, we're definitely heading in this direction. Um, I'm not aware of anything that's like fully doing it yet to that like extent, but, um, it feels to be honest, like broadly the technical, the technical capability is there now, and we would just need to fine tune this for like a medical context, essentially. Um, and I know there are tools like, for example, um, you know, Amazon have a tool, like Amazon medical comprehend, I think it's called, which it's what it sells itself as is something to like pick out these salient things from text. So you give it like a long paragraph and it will pick out that this is a symptom uh, that's been getting worse for like three weeks and that this is um, some kind of past medical uh, history, like a different um, diagnosis that they had in the past or all this kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, but I don't think, like I've not seen anything yet that is like this this kind of far end of the, the really high yield um, output that would work clinically fully. It seems like um, hospitals and hospital systems don't like paying for, you know, like a, loads of individual uh, tools. So I wonder if the kind of path to do this is to do one small thing really well and then get acquired by one of the big EHR systems, uh, I don't know, Epic, EMIS, et cetera. Um, I, w- I wonder if that's really the path to do this, like just to, just to do something small and then get acquired. I, because you, you can't see something like this being standing on its own. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, I think there's definitely some truth to that. Um, I mean, one one potential angle here is to, if you can offer some kind of concrete service which of which this can be a part of it and i guess what i mean by this is like um let's say we take referrals for example um like referral letters which is a letter that kind of says okay this is my patient i would love you to see them this is why essentially and like requests um some kind of appointment yeah maybe one one angle after which you described is like you create some tool that can generate that and somebody at the point of creating that referral could could create it then that gets used and then that's like a standalone thing that you want to get incorporated by these uh existing um, software providers to actually like enable that so like as a kind of acquisition play um but i also wonder if you could if you could be actually like the the wire software provider that services this whole pathway of which like your tool is one component of it but you're actually you're doing the whole thing i don't know if i've really explained that like that clearly but um yeah i think if you can offer something offer something concrete that covers a part of the pathway of which then this tool is is one component of that um that's a potential way in which this could become become bigger i don't know how much you've worked with electronic health record systems but how um how open are they or how good are the kind of the apis and other things for you to kind of build a tool and input into it because for this kind of stuff to be seamless you need to seamlessly be able to access the patient's records be able to make um referrals etc etc so you basically you need to have some kind of API, some kind of access to these things. Like, have you, do you have any experience with this? So I don't have direct experience with interfacing with them from like an API point of view. I have experience with kind of getting the data out of it to then use for like a research context. Um, but one actually interesting approach here, and I spoke to someone recently around this, is uh, that you actually, you can kind of get away without necessarily needing the API interface. Because yeah, I think my, my general impression is that they're not super easy necessarily to interface with. Um, but one approach is that you can like have macros at like a computer level that then basically operates over the system but the system doesn't know that you're like querying it or whatever so you could and like the way you can think of this is you just create a program that like moves your mouse here clicks on patient record goes into the file and then like extracts it and yeah this this uh guy i was talking to like his company basically does this for some of the for some gp services and automating some of their processes yeah so i guess this actually is like an example of what we're talking about would be this kind of thing so i i think they basically run like virtual computers that have a login for like EMIS or system one, which the two GP, uh, the two main GP ones. Um, and then it literally just like basically clicks, gets the information and automates some processes around that. And maybe even like acts, like it doesn't just retrieve information. It also kind of pings off a letter or something. I think that's definitely like one approach you could take. And then there's only pros and cons to it because the pro is you're not dependent on them, like having an API endpoint or kind of, um, officially collaborating with you anyway. But then you're also like quite vulnerable to like changes in their software. Like imagine 
um, you know, they, they tweak the flow, you kind of have to rewrite the whole macro, right? Because then maybe the previous one just didn't work anymore. That, that's like, that's as, a kind of hacky way around it. As, as a side point, what do you think of these kinds of, you, you know, with businesses, there's always like the main thing, like the main sexy thing. And then there's like these ancillary services. So I think, I think the guy you're talking about, I think I know his company as well. And, or, or maybe this is some other person, but essentially it's like, okay, you're building a startup that needs to be able to interface with lots of different, um, electronic health record systems that's a huge task in itself we are the company that makes that possible like you just input your stuff to us and we just make that happen the other example is people who are building stuff in the wellness space or in the kind of health optimization space they need to be able to interface with loads of different wearable devices whether that's your apple health uh, your garmin uh, nike plus whatever um, and that's a big task so there's i think there's a company called i think vital or vitality um that's their whole thing. Vital, yeah. They just make it up like yeah. vital, yeah. So I always find it interesting when people build businesses around like uh, a particular hurdle and I don't know, mm -hmm. they seem to do really well. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, those those kind of businesses, to be honest, I think are, like, I, I think could be strong businesses, right? Because then you're, you're basically building shovels rather than trying to like dig any particular type of hole or whatever. I don't, I don't know exactly how the saying goes, but like, uh, yeah, when, when everybody is trying to, for example, in this case, access health data from different places to unite stuff and build different services. If you can just build the shovel that everybody wants to use, like you're in a very good position as a business. And actually, interestingly, yeah, so there's Vital, but there's also, I've seen at least two other companies also out of YC, basically all pretty much doing exactly the same thing. So obviously a few people are having a similar idea at the same time, which, which you know, makes sense. It's kind of representative of the times right now, I think, um, that people are all thinking about this, like aggregation of health data and combination of health data. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm generally like quite bullish on, on these kind of approaches of, um, building some genuinely needed infrastructure that enables other people to do stuff. Um, and like maybe it's a bit of a tangent, but when I was thinking, I mean, I'm always, I'm always thinking about like what sort of directions to go from, from like a startup perspective. But, um, when I was looking at, okay, what kind of things could I build that would support machine learning application in healthcare? Like one angle is you, you think of a specific use case, like, I don't know, um, let's say like CTs, you want to do some AI that analyzes CTs and triages, uh, or decides whether you need that thrombolized or something uh, for stroke. Um, that's like a specific application. And there's like many, many different specific applications you could do. Then the other angle is, okay, is there something I could do that could ultimately enable more ML algorithms to be built, which you could definitely make the argument that the, the like enabler, you actually probably have a, a larger impact, right? Because imagine that there's like. 20 different radiology AI startups who all have like cool ideas and they all, they all, you know, make sense and, and could be used and could, could, uh, impact like clinical workflows, but there's like one blocker that they all have. If you can just build that blocker, then like you've kind of enabled 20 companies to really come to fruition versus like building one of those 20 companies. That was like at least the way I, I kind of think about it. So yeah, I would say broadly, I'm pretty bullish on, um, like enabler plays or I, I don't know how, how you would, uh, how you would call it, but, but this kind of thing of like enabling other people to do stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I read that. I guess the problem is that you become, uh, your, your value to the world becomes more abstract, uh, at least on a personal level to justify, um, what you, I, I don't know. I think it's cooler to kind of build the thing rather than be enabling other people. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need both, right? So it's good. Yeah. True. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on automation, summarization, or even generative AI, or do you want to move on? Um, no, I think, I think that's, that's, uh, we've probably missed a bit. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So I've got this idea that I want to talk about. Round two, fight. So this is direct to consumer weight loss clinics. So weight loss, right? So most of the Western world now, or many people in the Western world are too fat. And I think smoking gets a really bad rep, but, um, I, I saw this paper that was essentially talking about whether smoking poverty or being obese were a bigger kind of detriment to your physical health. And surprisingly, being obese is the worst one. Um, you know, smoking has like the all the all the negative PR, but being obese is even worse. I think uh, the stat I saw was that one billion people now in the world are obese. Um, and when we look at lifespan as well, especially in the developed nations like the UK and US, we're starting to level off for the first time. So I think it's leveling off around 78, 80. And you know, there might be, oh, there will be some cool new developments, some cool new therapeutics, but essentially i think it's coming down to prevention and lifestyle that's really the the kind of bottleneck in why we're not uh improving our nation's health and why maybe it's even getting worse um 
for many people in the Western world, I think, especially, you know, if you, if, if you are overweight, the single best health intervention you could have to your, to your physical health and probably your mental health is to come down to a healthy weight. So yeah, being obese is obviously not good. Most people don't want to be obese, but they like, they, you just can't do it. I mean, Chris, you're in great shape. Um, I've definitely got seven or eight kilos on me that I need to come off. Um, so I struggle with it as well. Um, and the other thing is that diets don't work. So I saw this BMJ 2020 meta-analysis, which is like the granddaddy of evidence. And it looked at like 20, 30 different trials done with diets. So it looked at like Atkins, keto, vegan, intermittent fasting, just every type of diet. And basically all of them in, you know, after six months, you've lost a little bit of weight. By 12 months, almost everyone has put it back on. So dieting just objectively just doesn't work. I mean, it's it's a nice... I mean, in theory, like mechanistically, it would work. Like eat less than you uh, than you're burning. So mechanistically, it should work, but it just it just doesn't work in real life. So, what's the solution to this? Um, currently, I think we kind of advise you know lifestyle um, interventions, diets, just change stuff, make it easier, behavioral interventions. And again, at least in the medical context, um, I don't know what your experience of this was, but I just don't think it works. It's really hard to take someone who's fifty or sixty years old and make them make a complete U-turn in their health and just be like, just everything everything you've been doing so far is wrong. Just do the complete opposite thing and you will be healthy. Like, I, like did you work in like GP or primary care? Did you did you like notice that people kind of lost weight and things? Like I've just never seen it happen. I think I have seen it, but it's really like a very small percentage of, of all cases, right? Like so many, so many people will try and then, and then ultimately, yeah, if you look at like what happens in the long term, there, w- there won't be much of a change and then there's a small majority of people who do do like a really have like a very very big impact um but then actually they're like they're the ones who will when you see these adverts for like a different diet they'll be like oh look at this person they did this but they're really like outliers like i i haven't seen the data but i i imagine it's like you know less than less than a few percent right will actually have some kind of transformative impacts um yeah and there's, def- there's definitely there's there's kind of multiple facets here right in that so much of it is a behavioral thing um there's like you know physiological elements there's like a kind of educational element of of knowing actually what is like a good diet which to some extent you know is still not still not defined there have been some very interesting progress in this as like a research field in the last five years or so which um could be interesting for us to talk about but yeah it feels like it's hard for many reasons i think it's very personalized to each individual person i think so much of it is is behavioral and it's not like superficial behavioral in the way that like, so CBT is really good for like kind of making superficial adjustments to, to yeah, so, like, so that's therapy basically. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, sorry, you, you kind of in the context of CBT, which is like cognitive behavioral therapy is like a six week program typically, um, focused on, for example, like helping with depression, helping with anxiety, but it's focused more like the level of what are your like thought patterns? What kind of behaviors are you, are you making rather than doesn't really like go deep into, okay, why do you, why do you like why are you feeling this way and um yeah kind of really basically going going like deep into the the underlying stuff behind it which is actually very effective for for like various different conditions but i feel like in weight loss i don't know like it feels like that's maybe not enough um and you need to go deeper and, and go like more personalized i think from the behavioral point of view yeah and um that's the kind of academic argument for why weight loss is a a, a big problem and why it's a great opportunity let me make the emotional case for it as well, or the or appeal to the heart as well. I think if you speak to 90% of adults, they basically would like to lose a bit of fat and gain a bit of muscle. Most people, I would say, would enjoy that if they could flip a switch and that would happen. Um, there's this really interesting framework. Um, I don't know which investor said it, but it's called um, the Seven Deadly Sins Framework. And essentially, it he's, this investor says that he only invests in businesses that target one of the seven deadly sins. And I think weight loss is great because it actually targets two of them. So um, one of them is pride. So just having a pride in your appearance and like looking good, that's a that's a that's a great thing to to do. And then also gluttony. Like if um, I want to lose weight, but you know I want to eat uh, Pizza Hut beef sizzler pizza like you know twice a week as well. So if I if I can do both of those things at the same time, then that's excellent. Um, and there's been a lot of like negativity towards um this like a pill for everything approach especially in america where it seems to have contributed to the opioid crisis but um i think it's great so what's the solution to all of this well 
there are two new hot drugs that have come out. Uh, one is called semaglutide, and the other one is called tazepatide. Um, I think my pronunciation is okay on those. Um, but essentially, these are diabetic drugs, and people notice that when you give them to people with diabetes, they lose weight. So the next kind of thesis was that what if you give it to someone who's not diabetic? You give it to like a like a normal person and see what happens. And two trials have been done in the New England Journal of Medicine, which again is like the um, it's like the Michael Jordan of medical journals. And in both of them, non-diabetic people who took these drugs, which are a once weekly injection, they lost fifteen to twenty percent of their body weight, which is incredible. So that was after six months. Um, they haven't, I believe, done the long-term stuff yet, but I believe one of the trials is actually carrying on for two years, so that'll be interesting to see. But just the fact that you can give someone a once-weekly injection and they'll lose 15 to 20% of their body weight is absolutely exceptional. And from this, a load of these direct-to-consumer clinics have cropped up. So it's a clinic, you, you, you just go onto a website, you have a, a consult with a doctor, and then they prescribe you this drug and you take it once a week. Um, and you may or may not get some therapy alongside that. Um, and they charge, I think in the UK, it's something like £150 a month. So in the US, I imagine it'd be something like 100 to $200 a month to do this. And what I like about it is that it's basically almost a guaranteed way of losing weight. Like everything else, whether you get a, a coach, a PT, you go on some new diet, you get some more accountability, like maybe it will work, maybe it won't. But this is literally like a guaranteed way to lose weight. So I, I think these are excellent. So um yeah, I've got some more to say, but um, what do you think? Yeah, okay, so I wasn't aware of these trials, to be honest, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, sound, it sounds good, right? Like, if, if it's a case of taking injections and cutting weight loss, and it's, like, consistent um, across different people, like, uh, yeah, did they give any ideas around the, like, mechanism of action here, or I know you mentioned they're both, like, glutide-type things, which, if I remember correctly, is something to do with uh, one of the receptors, um, like or glute, glute transformers or some, something like that, glute transporters. Um, yeah, I, I think I think I think one yeah. of them at least. Is, I think it's a GLP one agonist. Um, I said like you know the simplistic at least my understanding of it is that they basically make you feel less hungry. Um, they I, th I think downstream they affect ghrelin or leptin somehow, but basically you just feel less hungry. That's it. Okay. Yeah, I mean if it works, like makes sense. But then so with the what's the value out here of a direct to consumer clinic? versus like going you know to a gp or i mean i assume if it's quite cutting edge maybe it's not widely available from gps but what happens when gps ca catch up and it's like a kind of commonly prescribed thing assuming that the evidence like bears that out yeah this is a good point so i think this is particularly applicable in the uk or more um like socialized healthcare systems maybe in the us is different i've certainly heard that a lot of people in the us are on these already um, and I believe in the UK, maybe they are approved for just weight loss, although actually don't quote me on that. I, that could be wrong. Um, but I think the benefit is that it's very difficult, especially in a pressured socialized healthcare system like the NHS to just book appointments for preventative stuff or be like, yeah, I'm basically healthy. I'm fine, but, uh, I want to lose weight. Like, I, I don't know what the wait list will be for your GP to do that, but, uh, I imagine it's quite long. Secondly, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm really big on these um, single issue clinics that are cropping up. So you see a lot in mental health and weight loss and hair loss and things. And what I like about them is that basically medicine is quite messy. So no one will fit the textbook definition of diabetes or heart failure. Everyone will have like five or six different issues that are like interfacing with their life at home and various other things. So it doesn't really fit that mold. But what I like about these uh, businesses, and maybe it's not the most ethical or moral thing to be saying, but they just basically focus on a specific issue. They say, look, you're losing your hair. You want to get your hair back or you're too fat. So you want to lose weight or whatever. They just focus on one issue and they fit it. And I think that makes from a like a like a monetary perspective, it just makes it a bit cleaner and easier and it's quicker to be seen. So let me give you another example that I think is really cool. So there's this company in the UK called Psychiatry-UK. Like that's the, I think that's the domain and the, um, the, the name of the company as well. So Chris, so if you, if you have a kid in the UK and you think they have ADHD, do you know what the wait list time is like to get them assessed by a psychiatrist? I don't know, but I imagine this, imagine it's long, like 10 weeks, yeah, yeah. a few months. No, okay. No, 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 no. Okay. Thanks. You, you set me up well there. So it's actually okay. it's seven years up to seven years. So, so as well. Okay. <laughs> 
So like wow. probably by that time, it's kind of game over in terms of any intervention that could have helped them. Um, they're probably an adult by then. But anyway, yeah. So wait times are up to seven years. So this company, literally all they do is they um, assess people. So they do like an online consult with a psychiatrist and they assess them for ADHD. Um, and then I believe they prescribe kind of a starting dose of the medication or therapy or whatever they need. And then they hand them back to their kind of uh, a general practice or primary care person. So just through this single issue, they, they do a consult. So I think they charge something like £360 if you do it privately. Or um, I don't know what they're charging the NHS. But what I really, really like about this, so I, was, I was looking at the uh, company's house, like accounts for this company. Um, and it was, they were kind of, it was kind of difficult to work out exactly how much they were making. But it seems like in 2022, they probably made upwards of £10 million. And they've about doubled since 2021. So they're growing phenomenally fast. And just to think that they have tackled this single issue, like this single yeah. problem in the in the workflow, and they're making so much money off it, it's, it's very cool. So I'm really interested in these companies. And I think the biggest opportunities for these kind of single issue online clinics are things in probably dermatology, probably psychiatry, um, and probably, and I, I think weight loss maybe interfaces a bit with like kind of like mental health, but also physical health. But um, yeah, I think these are like the big opportunities. Um, yeah, what, what what do you think of all uh, of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it makes sense that that there's a lot of like conditions that affect a lot of people, and there's therefore like a big potential market size. And by going direct to consumer, you can, you know, you can obviously go direct to the people who are like willing to pay. Um, I think one issue just to be like careful with in in a healthcare context here is. Um, yeah, I guess around the like risk of kind of overdiagnosing or being like too profits driven in this kind of context. So for example, with ADHD, uh, you know, th there's like some concern, right? That maybe too many people are being diagnosed with ADHD and that might, or even that maybe there's other conditions as well, right? That it might be the case that diagnosing more people with this condition and putting more medication is actually not like in their best interest in, in the majority of cases. Um, and so. Yeah, there's a risk that you are you're saying a business which okay, you're helping people get their ADHD ADHD medication, get those diagnoses, but you're I think you have to be careful not to be basically too profit driven in this kind of context because you can end up with too many people being on medications that actually might not be the right thing for them, even if they think that they should be taking it. And this is one of the things actually that I think is quite nice about UK, like just from my experiences, is that GPs generally are quite good at saying no to things that the patient wants, but you kind of know probably that it's not really the right thing for them to have. And I think part of it is because they don't have this, the same sort of like profit incentive structure that maybe other countries like US, they might find it a bit harder to say no as some kind of intervention or some kind of prescription. Um, but that being said, like, as long as you can you can navigate that, then uh, yeah, like, I, think, I think you can concretely, like if the waiting list is seven years and people want to get assessed by ADHD and you're like assessing it properly and not being like unduly influenced by potential profits, then I think, yeah, it's like you're, you're having a good impact, right? Yeah. So the one thing I've learned from primary care and working in secondary care and things is that when someone comes in asking for something uh, from as a patient, it's super easy to give them what they want. Um, if that means that you need to give them a like an opiate for like chronic pain or antibiotics for a viral illness, it's it's like the easy thing to just give it to them. Uh, I can definitely see how these online clinics, which are incentivized, maybe they raise money as well. They've got like some uh, incentives to grow quickly, like why they might be um, more inclined to kind of please the customer per se. Um, there's a company in the US called Cerebral, which I think does something similar. It was valued at $5 billion. And there's another one called uh, Dunn as well. And they had a, what I believe is a federal investigation uh, at least one of them did into their practice essentially and one of them i believe I, th I think the criticism was that they were over prescribing like adderall and ritalin and some of these stimulants that are given for adhd so that was certainly a criticism they received i don't know what happened from that but um yeah i can definitely see that happening here as well yeah i think i think ultimately it's probably not something that is impossible to overcome but i mean it's always a risk right like if the if your business is very much centered around this as like the main profit generating mechanism, then um, it's a challenge. I mean, maybe you could make like a different funding structure, which is that people, you know, people pay for the consultation, but there's like no payment for the uh, actual like prescriptions. Like kind of like basically decouple the 
the financial incentives with the end output of the consultation. So your metrics are more related to, okay, how many people are you seeing? How like, are you assessing them fully or whatever? Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, interesting. Although I suspect just from word of mouth and keeping customers happy, I suspect the ones that are more kind of laissez-faire with prescriptions yeah. and things are the ones that are going to come out on top. Uh, but maybe being too cynical there. Yeah, no, you, you might be right. You might be right. Yeah. Do you have time for for one more idea? Uh, yeah. Which one do you, Which one do you want to do? Um, I was going to do your cross border uh, healthcare idea. Although, if you want to do a different one, we can do that as well. Yeah, I think we. I think we good. I think let's let's do that one, and then um, yeah, and then and then and then we should be good. Final round. Fight. Okay, so Chris, this is actually your idea that I'm pitching, but you're kind of the deadbeat dad who had this idea and then abandoned it. And then I'm kind of the person who's kind of picked up the kid and looking after it now, because I, I, think, I think it's a great idea. So essentially the problem is that there's a lot of um, immigrants who've moved from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Southeast Asia, just wherever, and they've moved to basically developed nations like the UK, US, Canada, and they have families back home. And often those are elderly parents with possibly a limited uh, family support structure back home. And there's lots of like cultural stuff that ties into this as well. So they're in a position where they probably have a lot of money, especially compared to back home. Uh, but they're like geographically, they're just in the wrong area. So they can't really look after their parents how they want to. And in these cultures, there's often a big emphasis on kind of caring for your elderly parents. And there's a big expectation and a lot of responsibility. So again, going back to the seven deadly sins framework i don't know if responsibility is a seven deadly sin but it's kind of like a really core need that people have to like look after their elderly parents which is a great thing the other problem is that back home in these countries there's not like in uh the uk us canada etc there are like there are guidelines um that are kind of decided by a load of experts and they decide okay if you have diabetes and your blood sugars at this level take this drug first then this drug then next drug Back home, I think medicine tends to be more of an art. There's certainly a lot of charlatans. There's a lot of like bad medicine. There's just a lot of variety, essentially. A lot of good medicine as well. Um, but basically, your your parents could be really like being mismanaged. They could just have completely random medications with like terrible side effect profiles that they shouldn't be on. Um, and you wouldn't really know, especially if you're not medical. Um, secondly, like, you know, if, if one of your parents gets ill back home, um just even just getting them to hospital like maybe there is an ambulance service maybe there's not maybe there's private ambulances like maybe someone needs to sit with them maybe someone needs to advocate for them a bit when they're in hospital so there's like there's lots of these problems now the solution that you kind of worked on initially and maybe you want to talk about it more but you called it Japi day which i think means hug and there's essentially a kind of what i think is like a subscription service so say uh, a doctor or someone comes to your parents every month, they kind of check up on them, see how their health's doing, maybe do some basic checks and then write up a report that comes back to you. And then the thought would be that then if, you know, you pay a monthly fee for that and then if they need more kind of secondary care or other input, then that doctor can sort that out with trusted people back home. And all of this is managed for you. It's in like a nice kind of, uh, you know, delivery Uber-esque dashboard that's super easy to use. Um, and you're kind of like, you don't have as much of a headache or you don't have as much kind of guilt and worry about your parents because they're being looked after. There's certainly like another level you could add on to that where they could maybe help with different chores or different jobs people ba have back home. And just to kind of talk about, because this might sound a bit niche, but I actually think it's a huge opportunity, like just to talk about the kind of the market size. So in Pakistan, I think there are like, you know, that's, that's where I'm from. So there's over 300 million people. 8 million of them are overseas Pakistanis. They live abroad and predominantly in kind of well-off nations. In India, um, I, th I think there's like a billion people and 32 million Indians live abroad. Then when you add in like, you know, Southeast Asia, Africa, just all of these other places, you get a really big market. And let's say, say just in the US, 40 million first-generation immigrants. So those are people who kind of, you know, fresh. They've just, they've just moved to the US. So imagine... Um, you even get 1% of those, that's 400,000 people just in the US. So yeah, I think this is an absolutely amazing idea and I'm really keen for myself or someone to work on it because I, I think it's so good. Um, but yeah, Chris, do you want to talk about it? And maybe also talk about some of, because you worked on it. So what were kind of some of the problems that that, that didn't work? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, I think it's definitely, yeah, this is an interesting problem and it, it capitalizes on a lot of interesting trends that exist uh, today, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, and as you kind of pointed to, the fact that there's like increasingly 
an international world and there's a lot of these cultural needs to standardize healthcare. Well, there's a lot of cultural needs around caring for your relatives and there's also the need to like standardize healthcare in like parts of the developing world, which is much less standardized than it is in, in like developed world. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, like I share, I share the, the, this is, um, this is like a very exciting, interesting area to play in. And I think that people should build companies here. Um, there's definitely some challenges with it, which don't, don't like fully kill the idea. But I think one of the challenges is around like customer acquisition. Um, because if you consider that, uh, yes, there's like a lot of, for example, Pakistanis in this case, and there's a lot, a lot of Pakistanis living abroad. But then if you go to any particular location abroad, like the majority of people there are not overseas Pakistanis, right? So you're kind of trying to find the needle in the haystack a little bit um, because, yeah, a lot of like the traditional ways in which you might reach out to people of any like anything like kind of geographical based, you're you're already like kind of struggling to find that particular individual. Now, obviously, it changes a bit with the internet because you can do more targeted um, like approaches by the internet, but that's one thing. But then also, if you kind of consider even within that, there's like a subsegment of... Um, you know, maybe like in Bradford in the UK, which is like a, a small, small to medium sized city, there'll be a lot of Pakistanis, but then actually it's not just a criteria that needs to be a Pakistani living somewhere like in Bradford or, or, you know, in the UK more broadly, they also need to be somebody who then meets the criteria of having an elderly relative over in Pakistan. And that elderly relative also needs to need the services that you're offering, which initially like kind of general principle startups usually like focus on like really a few specific things and maybe you can expand later, but, um, Let's say you pick like one specific problem, which is that you want GPs to go and check in on people who um, have chronic conditions, right? Like let's say, let's say that was your niche. You're kind of going like a niche within a niche within a niche, right? Because you you're looking at people who are from Pakistan who are living abroad, who have a relative that's back in Pakistan, and that relative also then has to have like a chronic condition. So you're already like really serving a small niche, and it just makes it a little bit harder for the VC backed um, like fast scale type companies. Um, so I. Like, I even wonder if, if you were doing this kind of idea to not necessarily go the VC-backed route um, from the beginning and just kind of try and build it from the ground up. And if you can get, like, some good traction with that community and get a way to engage with the people who want this kind of service, I think then, like, yeah, I think you could you could build a pretty nice business here from the ground up. And obviously, Pakistan is just one example. Like, there's many, many countries where they have this diaspora, they have this cultural um, expectation to help look after relatives, Uh our generation is kind of, I've heard described as the sandwich generation, which is that we obviously we're looking after our kids. We also like now have our relatives who are like aging that we also have responsibilities for. So there's like increasing pressures there. There's a lot of people who, you know, work, they're doing like long hours and they um, might not have as much time to like really check in on their parents as they would, as they would want to, or maybe they have kids to kind of occupy the time as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a nice opportunity. Like I think I also share the interest in our case. Yeah. I mean, I decided not to work on this for a few reasons. I think one, one part of it is the, that it's it's a it's a harder like kind of to go the VC route where I was very much looking at building like a, a scale fast VC backed company. There, there probably is a way to do it, um, but yeah, like it, it feels less like one of those ideas and more like a kind of ground up, um, a ground up business basically. Yeah, um, I, the one thing I will say is that you know talking about the niche within a niche, I certainly agree with that. But the I think the one benefit is that it's not like a niche of like. Say you're trying to find like, um, I don't know, people into keeping reptiles and they'll all be spread across the country in like random villages, like just, you know, one, two people in each village. You're looking at a niche, which is like, once you, once you crack that community, everyone kind of knows everyone. Like even with my parents, you mentioned someone from Pakistan who's a doctor or something and lives down South, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of know a friend of a friend. So I think it's one of those where if you crack into like that community, that's certainly the hard bit. But I think once you do that, like through word of mouth and things um you could certainly spread but yeah I, I i do recognize that it is it is a niche within a niche on the vc point of view i think i agree with you i don't i don't know how much it fits into the vc kind of like blitz scale um framework although i guess one of the benefits is that if you kept it light and offered you were more of a matchmaking service initially rather than like this full-on platform so essentially you were just connecting people here to clinics in their home country and kind of sitting as the middleman between those two things um you could potentially kind of be earning money from day one and bootstrap the whole thing so in, in some ways that's almost a strength um <laughs> i certainly think you might you'd need i don't know like 100k or something just to just to fly over to those places and just set up the links but potentially you wouldn't need um loads and loads of like uh, an investment um but yeah what you've kind of 
I've, I still haven't cracked this with you is why why was it not a good idea because you were partnered with Ali who's Pakistani I believe as well so there was a bit of that you probably would have cracked the communities you know at least as an initial initial point of view but like what what did you not like about the idea that meant that you didn't go after it yeah so I mean I think there were, there were a few other elements I also touched on this the kind of customer acquisition side um which is is like a non-trivial challenge another thing here also is actually the the existing healthcare provision on the ground in Pakistan. So we kind of felt that actually the place where you would add the most value and from the people that we spoke to was really around providing a kind of like almost a GP primary care type check-in with with elderly relatives. Um, because with the clinic referral stuff, stuff kind of already exists to a large extent, which will help people like find the clinics that they go to and people will just like pick up the phone and call them. And that, that sort of system is in place. So there's not a strong pain point there necessarily. Um, but actually with like getting someone to come visit you in your own home, check up on your health and create some kind of structured report, that makes a lot of sense. But one of the issues here really is like right now, GP as a specialty is not really a thing in Pakistan. Like there's not, there's not trained GPs who are just waiting for like a job or to do like some remote work or to do some home visits. Um, like there's, there's variation in the like level of training that different people have. And there's not this as I understand, it's not a clear-cut divide between like doctors and not doctors in the way that like UK is like, okay, I'm a doctor versus I'm not. Um, there's a lot of people who will have some kind of like general medical experience and might offer these kind of services, but actually they're not like medically qualified. And likewise, you have people who are medically qualified, um, but maybe they've only worked in hospitals and they don't really have like any GP experience. And when you look at other services that offer these kinds of platforms, the main critique the customers have is like variability in the quality of the doctors and the ability to trust the doctors. And so if you're building a company here, you really need to be able to actually create that trust for the doctors. But now if you're creating that trust for the doctors, because this is key, right? Like if you're living abroad and you're like arranging a doctor to go and look after your relative, like you really have to trust that doctor. You're not being able to see them face to face. Like, you know, you're kind of letting that doctor go into your family's home and like examine them and all this kind of thing. Um, and you're kind of putting your name on that as the son, daughter who's arranging that care. But the issue with the trust side is it's very hard to build a scalable company where you can you like have that full trust of the doctors that are then going and providing those services. Um, particularly if like the kind of pool of doctors that you're tapping into is not really set up to provide this kind of care. So that there's a bit of a, a transformation required, which would maybe be like, I don't know, training people more around like general practice or, or like really, again, a kind of a, not a customer acquisition, but like a, a doctor acquisition play here of trying to find the doctors who actually have the right experience, the right kind of skill set, and the right availability, um, to then actually go and deliver these visits as well. So there's there's another challenge on that side. Um, so I think it's really, yeah, it's, it's this challenge of, of like matching things. And you add in the complexity of the fact that, again, on the supply side, you also have these geographical restrictions. So I, I mentioned, you know, you need to find somebody in the UK who has a relative who needs this kind of like care. But then they might have a, a relative in Lahore and someone else might have a relative in like Karachi and then you need someone on the ground to deliver those visits and that's very different and then that person also needs to meet the requirements of being like an appropriate doctor and so yeah i think i think it's just ultimately like there's a lot of logistical challenges around providing this kind of service and differentiating yourself on the like level of trust and uh reputation of the doctors because that's really i think the 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 company would like kind of live or die on that reputation and it'd be like very hard to take steps to really ensure that you have that trust and and uh that like even you can like trust people who's living the the care right um yeah so that's kind of like that's those i think are some of the main reasons we sort of moved away from it i think there's a lot of good things about it and i think maybe someone will come in and, and build something great in the space but there's a lot of like weeds to go through of figuring out okay well how do we actually like establish this trust how do we verify the doctors how do we maybe even you know train them or maybe we even need to do something where you part them and then with doctors abroad who are like GPs and have more GP experience to help them like upscale as as GPs and then once you've done that how do you like retain them and um yeah these kind of logistical things basically yeah um totally agree um I spoke to my dad who said the exact same thing that general practice or primary care doesn't really exist as a specialty uh neither does geriatrics really you just go straight to the specialty that you want if you have a cardiology problem you speak directly to the cardiologist so yeah it doesn't exist um, yeah, also just to add the huge regulatory and litigation kind of burden that you have, where if one of your doctors sees an elderly relative one day and then they die the next day, 
um potentially that was going to happen anyway but uh you know you know people get you know upset and you, you might bear the brunt of that but the last kind of two benefits i didn't touch on was that a there's a kind of currency arbitrage opportunity where money here is or in the uk or the us is worth a lot more back home so the figures i kind of when i had a quick look at this is like kind of like the equivalent of like a quick gp consultation that would be about a thousand rupees which i think is about seven or eight pounds specialist one might be about the equivalent of 30 or 40 pounds so there's certainly a massive arbitrage there where rich westerners are paying and then you're getting care from these countries so it's like that's quite nice secondly i guess all these challenges in some ways are a very good moat to have um and the kind of like you know is the juice worth the squeeze but in another sense you're also not creating the next kind of dermatology ai startup which kind of everyone can do you're kind of you're doing something that's actually really difficult and if it does work out then potentially you've got a really defensible mode because you've got all those relationships and that brand and reputation and trust so yeah i think a difficult one though yeah i think the whoever does it um i think they'll make a lot of money and i think it'll be really cool yeah yeah, I agree. Nice. Um, shall we finish up then? So do you want to uh, just plug yourself where people can find you? Yeah, sure. So I think best place uh, to find me would be my personal website, which is just chrislovejoy.me, chrislovejoy.me. Um, I have like talked about all the different projects I'm working on and link away to, to other like socials and stuff there. Um, but that'd be the best place to go. Fine. And you can find all my stuff at bigpicturemedicine.co.uk, um, all on YouTube, on all podcasting networks, etc. Um, and yeah, if you enjoyed this format, then let me know, tweet at me or email me at hi at musti.io. Um, and if you're someone who has some ideas to discuss as well, then let me know as well. And we can uh, definitely do something together. Um, okay, man. Thanks a lot. I'll uh, stop recording. Cool. This was fun. Take care.